Amen. Good morning, church. Well, I'm not going to regale you in song today because my throat is a little given out on me quite a bit. So um, I will use the sweater, though. So welcome back to the neighborhood. Hope you're all doing well. If you have your Bibles or your apps, turn to Luke chapter 10. Um, That's where we're going to start today. Uh, starting with verses 25 through 29. And we read these words. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus says. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus this, And who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor, in order to justify himself. But have you ever wondered, why was he trying to justify himself? Justify what? Rick Rousseau and Brian Mavis write in their book, The Neighboring Church, suggest it's because the lawyer has found himself in a transactional worldview. In some ways, this is not surprising. The Jewish law had 613 commands, and in the time of Jesus, the teachers and the leaders of the church had always, or had added another couple of thousand layers on top of that, just to be safe, resulting in a religion that often was measured, that measured loving God by means of a list of obligations and regulation, a list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, or what we might call, for lack of a better term, transactions. Now, before we get too comfortable in our religious high horse, perhaps this is where we should mention that many of us make church into a transaction an event that we have to come to so that we can check it off of our, ch- our to-do list. I hope you know this. I hope you know that we don't come to church as a transaction. We don't come to church in order to please a God who is otherwise angry with us. We don't come to church so that we can show our face to God so that he can remember what we look like. We come to church to learn how to see God in the face of everyone we meet. We come to church to live out the love and the accountability and the holiness that God has called us to in Christ and sealed us, and sealed us for with the Holy Spirit. We come to church to unite with those that we are family with because Christ has bound us together in love by the Holy Spirit 
so that together we're stronger than we could ever be individually or alone. We come to church because we live from the blessing, not for the blessing. We are what God has made us, and he has made us one. So when Jesus is talking to the lawyer in this story, he is talking to someone who has found a way of being very religious, but that way never really finds a way to translate his love for God into something that has changed the way that he lives his everyday life with those around him. And it is in that moment, when I look at this scripture, that I realize that when Jesus tells this story to the lawyer, he's really telling it to me. Because sometimes I've made being religious into something that I do to show God that I love him, but it has nothing to do with my everyday walk or my relationships with the people around me. Jesus shows us and calls us to believe that kingdom living is moving away from these transactional ideas and moving into transformational opportunities. Hence the story of loving your neighbor. Notice he doesn't really answer the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a story and then asks the lawyer, what kind of neighbor are you? Rather than letting you know this transactional score, he says, I'm going to tell you a story. and You're going to tell me what kind of neighbor you are. Okay. All right. We're going to take a little quiz. Okay? You guys excited? I am. I got a quick little 10-question quiz that we're going to do. All right? And you're going to answer it yes, or somewhat, or no. So you're going to need a piece of paper and a pen, or your phone. It's okay, you can use that. Um, I know you have them. I see a lot of blue faces out in the crowd. So I know you're looking at your phones. That's okay. No phone shaming here. Okay? That helps you keep score. That's okay. So, yes... If you answer yes to this question, give yourself a two, okay? If you answer somewhat, then give yourself a one. And if you answer no, then give yourself a zero. Or, you know what, put a line through it. I don't want to make you feel bad, okay? So, this survey comes from Longmont Christian or Lifeway Christian Church in Longmont, Colorado. So if you have an issue with it, take it up with them, not me. Okay. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Thank you. Someone is ready. Remember, yes, somewhat, or no. Yes, you're going to give yourself two. Somewhat, one, no, put a line through. Okay. Here we go. Question number one. I like my neighbors. Okay, notice I didn't say love. Say, I like my neighbors. Yes, somewhat, or no. 
my neighbor. Question number two, my neighbors like me. Okay, if they don't know you, you really can't answer yes, okay? I'm just putting it out there right now. Okay, question number three. I talk to my neighbors. Not, I have spoken to my neighbors, or I talk at my neighbors. I talk to my neighbors. Question number four. I do nice things for my neighbors. Question number five. I, generally care, I genuinely care about my neighbors. Yes, somewhat or not. Number six, my neighbors invite me to their parties. Okay? That used to be yes for me until people found out I was a pastor and an elder. Now they don't invite me to their parties at all. I, I don't know. I don't know why. They just don't. Question number seven. I actually like going to my neighbor's parties. If you don't get invited, but you're sure you'll like going to their parties, then go ahead and give yourself a two. All right, three more. I know, question number eight, I know what is happening in my neighborhood. Okay? Dania would answer yes. I would answer no. I only know what she tells me goes on in our neighborhood. Okay, uh, question number nine. I watch out for my neighborhood. And finally, the last one, question 10. When people need help in my neighborhood, they come to me. Hey, take a few minutes or not a few minutes, you got about 10 seconds to tally up your scores, okay? And we're going to go through this evaluatory, evaluation of where you scored, okay? And we're going to use a little um, help from some famous neighbors. You ready? Good. If you scored between 17 and 20 points, this is the Mr. Rogers category. You're the best neighbor ever. You know your neighbors and you are, an en you are engaged in your neighborhood. To you, we say, keep it up. You are an inspiration to the rest of us. And we have much we could learn from you. If you scored between 13 and 16 points, you're Steve Urkel. <laughs> if you're not familiar with who Steve Urkel is, you're probably much younger than I am. You're a little quirky, and some might say occasionally annoying, but deep down you are good-hearted and you almost always do the right thing. People can count on you when they need something. Okay, if you're like me, you scored between 9 and 12 points. You and we are Wilson. 
from home improvement. You're always there and willing to share some friendly advice, but you much prefer to stay on your side of the fence. All right, five to eight. You are Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Which means you are trying hard, but people just don't get you. Then lastly, if you manage between zero and four points, you are Newman. Jerry Seinfeld's neighbor. It might be good for you to seek some advice for those who scored in the Mr. Rogers category. You need to find some people to help you that you can learn from. Because ultimately, Jerry doesn't want to be neighbors with Newman. Okay, that was kind of fun. Unless you were, well, a Newman. Or a Ned Flanders, that doesn't sound like much fun. So why did I share this with you today? Because I think it reminds us and gets us out of that transactional neighborhood or that transactional understanding of what Christianity is. I do church well. I meet the religious requirements that I have put into place. And then it takes us back to a transformational encounter place. It makes us remember that Christianity, that following Christ, being a disciple of Christ, comes with it the necessary expression of actually relating to real people in my everyday life that shares with them the presence of Jesus. And so it matters what kind of neighbor you are. Great neighborhoods are built on reciprocal relationships. Because you see, at the end of the day, no one wants to feel like they're a project. So when we say, go love your neighbor, go learn their names, have them over, what we're saying is don't turn your neighbors into a project. What I'm telling you is go and meet them. Go and find out who they are and appreciate them. Because what you'll find is that we all, at the end of the day, want to feel we bring something to the table. So when it comes to loving our neighbor, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll put on a cape and we'll become super neighbor. Ready to change the lives of all those on our block. But we also forget that we too have needs. We also forget that we too need relationships. We forget that we have the opportunity to provide the opportunity for someone else to be a good neighbor. If we don't allow other people to meet our needs, then we limit what God wants to do in our neighborhoods, in, the, in our lives. See, the trouble is, we just really don't want to be on the receiving end of things. We don't like looking or feeling vulnerable or dependent 
We value being capable and we want to be well-supplied heroes with extra resources for others who are not as capable or as powerful as us. That's because we are, above all else, benevolent. And the question is, are you trying to be there for your neighbor, or are you trying to be there with your neighbors? Because Jesus isn't simply calling us to be there for them. He's calling us to be there with them. Because you're not their hero. You're their neighbor. And in relationships where giving is only one-sided, it robs the person on the receiving end. When your giving is one-sided all the time, it robs the other person of their dignity. It makes them into a dependent, and your relationship becomes a patron-client relationship rather than a neighbor-to-neighbor relationship. When giving is two-sided, each one feels a sense of worth. Everyone on the block has something of value to bring to your relationship. Loving our neighbors is about helping to create a sense of community within our neighborhoods, which means it's not nearly doing things for, but doing things with. And that empowers each person in the relationship. So I want you to grasp, if you could, the art or the, the concept of being a good receiver. One of my teachers at Rochester College, Adam Hill, calls it the art of receiving. Being a good receiver. So in Matthew chapter 7, we read these these verses, 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Something I noticed when I was looking at this passage, I have four or five commentaries on Matthew. And all five of them say this passage is on prayer. As a matter of fact, you may have a heading in your Bible that says instructions on prayer. And so while I was studying the scripture this week, I was wondering... Why is it about prayer? This, this scripture doesn't even mention the word prayer anywhere. And then I thought to myself, you know, well, let's talk about asking. And prayer does involve, on one level, asking God for things. But I think Jesus is saying something a little deeper here. I think Jesus is instructing us to be people who ask to seek and to knock. Because it is that which reminds us 
that it is God who sustains us, it is God who provides for us, it reminds us that God is the one who gives. We do not take, we do not earn, God is the one who gives, and we are always those who ask, seek, and knock. And the person who is asking is asking because they don't have what they need. The person who is seeking is seeking because they haven't found what it is that they are looking for. And the person who is knocking is knocking because they're not the one hosting the event. Asking, seeking, and knocking is a way of saying, live your life in such a way that you recognize that you are a person that is on the receiving end and not the person who is always providing. A lifestyle of asking, seeking, and knocking is one that requires a little bit of dependency, a little bit of vulnerability, rather than always having and supplying what it is you need. And so when Jesus says, I want you to live a life of someone who asks, seeks, and knocks, I think he's trying to get through to us the work that's involved in being a good receiver. It wasn't long ago I learned this, for lack of better words, the the hard way. Okay? A few years ago, my wife had surgery. And in the aftermath of that, a few days later, it was discovered that she had blood clots. Okay? I get all choked up when I think about this, because I still to this day. We had always been the ones who give. Give, give, give. Okay? We were the first people that you would call if you needed anything. Okay? And, and I was pastoring a church up in Mayville while still we were still somewhat involved here. And so when people were constantly bringing us dinner, and we kept saying, no, we're okay. But they kept bringing it. They brought us so much mastatoli. I was like, no. Still to this day, I can't go to an open house or anything and see a pan of mastatoli. <laughs> but the love and the grace that people showed to us during that time You know, it really does make a person feel humble and appreciative. But while I was going through that, I'm like, I got it. I can make dinner. I don't need anything. Okay? That's what I'm getting at. And when we're on the receiving end, we go, I don't like that. Receiving is challenging. Living an ask, seek, knock life takes humility. But yet, true transparency, 
Even today, I'm still amazed that my heart doesn't want to be humbled. So when we talk about the value of not wanting to impose on others, I don't want to impose, so I'm not going to mention that I have a need. I'm not going to mention that I need some help. Now, it doesn't mean that you should go out and manufacture a need for your neighbor to solve for you. Like if you have sugar, don't go and ask your neighbor for sugar. Okay, that's falsehood. Don't be false. Be authentic. But perhaps it is time for us to think, if I don't have it, maybe I could borrow it before I go and buy it. It's a good directive for some things in society today. That I could go next door and say, hey, we're out of eggs. And I really, really, really want some brownies. Okay, that's an everyday occurrence in my life. We don't want to impose on others can easily become another way of saying, I don't want to look vulnerable. I don't want to look like I'm not perfect. And it robs the other person of the opportunity to help you and to bless you. It robs them of the opportunity to be the kind of neighbor that you want them to be. The kind of neighbor that you would love them to be or love to be for them if they came to your door and asked for eggs or sugar. And I want you to listen to me very closely. Very few people find fault with anyone who has a need. But in our heads, we find all kinds of faults with ourselves if we have needs and we have to admit it. Very few people find faults with anyone who has needs. But in our head, we find all kinds of faults with ourselves if we have needs and have to admit it. The key is a genuine opportunity for helping someone, including yourself, if you're the person who is in need. Finally, in Luke chapter 7, and this is where we're going to finish today. It is the last story in the chapter. It tells the story of Simon the Pharisee who has Jesus over to the house. And there is an unexpected guest. And you've probably read this story, but we're going to give it a go. Luke chapter 7, verses 36, or starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him 
at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. In verse 37, it's important to note that Luke points out that this is a woman who had lived a sinful life. But yet he contracts that with the Pharisee who has invited Jesus over, a very religious person, and he's showing a great job of human hospitality. And the sinful person, well, has crashed the party and has chosen to make a spectacle. Picking back up in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. So almost on cue, Jesus answers, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, Simon says. Two people owed a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And neither one of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both of them. Now which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Well, of course he's seen her. She's an uninvited guest to the party. She crashed the party. We see her. Jesus says, I have come into your house, but you have not given me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, But this woman, from the time I have entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, and she has poured perfume on my feet. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. This woman takes the only thing of value she has and worships Jesus. But what do you think is the result if Jesus rejects her offering? What do you think it would do to her? Because she knows exactly what Simon the Pharisee feels about her offering. Simon the Pharisee doesn't even want her to touch Jesus, let alone would he touch her or be affected by her offering. If Jesus were to reject her offering, it would have crushed her. 
And instead, he accepts the offering. He even defends it as true worship that rivaled all the religious leaders sitting at the table at that dinner with Jesus. See, I'm pretty sure, I'm going to go out on a limb here, that Jesus didn't need a foot washing or a perfume treatment. But his willingness to receive her gift meant everything to that woman. And you know, here's the big irony in a text like this. That I pray speaks and empowers you. Jesus came to give himself to us and for us. Jesus came to give himself to us and for us, right? Good. But yet, in this amazing paradox of grace, Jesus becomes the one who is willing to accept from us. And so I feel like every sermon that I do should end with this. Look at the example of Jesus and go do that. You are called to be there and to give to your neighbor, but you also have this amazing blessing because of the paradox of pure grace to turn and receive from your neighbors the way Jesus has showed us. Can we do that? Can we not only be good givers, but be good receivers as well? Can we not be so full of ourselves with pride and humility that when we recognize that we have a need and we don't have the resources to reach out to each other? And then when you are the one who has a need, can we not be so full of ourselves that we don't reach out to others? Can we do that? Can we be a good neighbor? And that's two-sided. To be a good neighbor to you and you be a good neighbor to me, can we do that? Is that possible? Can we learn to live like that? Can we learn to live a life that asks, seeks, and knocks? Can we live like that? Because here's the amazing thing. It just might make all the difference in the world. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, I just am so amazed at your word. that you tell us to go and, and to be a good neighbor. But being a good neighbor is not always about giving. It's about being a good receiver as well. That we don't put on some sort of cape and become some super neighbor ready to supply all of 
the neighborhood. That sometimes you want us to simply be there with our neighbor instead of always being there for them. Father, part of sharing the love of Christ is simply allowing others to bless us. And that's not easy. Because that takes humility, that takes vulnerability. Father, it takes humility. It takes us to empty ourselves of pride. And that's not easy. We can't do that on our own without the help of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would not only make us a good neighbor to our neighbors, but you would always make us a good receiver from them as well. Because, Father, if we're going to change our neighborhoods, if we are going to change our church, if we are going to change our community and change the world, it begins by loving each other. By loving you first and then loving each other. Father, give us the spirit that wants only to glorify your name. So, Father, I pray help in all these areas. And, Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.